Well, welcome into episode 68 of Self-Hosted, everybody. This is a big episode today. We've got uh, Chris with me in person. Sitting right here. I get I get the desk, too. I know. I can look into the whites of your <laughs> eyes today. That's oh, very you strange. Got, you've got a, if anybody has seen, is it Lewis Rossman, right? <laughs> you look, you just need the cat. You look exactly like Lewis Rossman right now in that huge lounge chair with the Except microphone. I don't have the muscles and I'm a little, the, the anger's dialed down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you're not quite as amped. Uh, I'd also like to welcome in today, Wes Payne. Hello, hello. It's good to be back. Hey, Wes. How was the uh, trip in? You got here just a little bit ago. It was a little longer. A few extra flights that I didn't expect, but it was well, well worth it. 50% more flights, if I, if I understand it right. Unfortunately so. Yeah, so these two fine gentlemen are joining me today at my house uh, for the big Jupiter Broadcasting East Coast meetup, which is on Saturday. And looking like it's going to be a hell of a party because not only do we have probably over a hundred people showing up, but there's some town event going on too. So it's going to be, I mean, we're going to, this is going to be one of those where we have stories for a while. As this episode airs, uh, the meetup will be the day after. So, you know, airs on Friday, so the meetup's on the Saturday. Uh, there was, I think this, uh, this town event is like an Easter, like spring fling thing. There's going to be food trucks and yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. So. If you're in the Raleigh area, or even if you're not, stop by, say hi. It'd be amazing to see you. It was nice for us, though, because we got in a couple days early, so we could, you know, hang out and uh, pre-show a little bit as we do, and do some barbecuing, and do some talking and catching up. So uh, Brent is actually in route right now, too, as we record. It's just, you know, and it's great to see your new place. Well, it's probably not as new to you anymore, but it's new to all of us. Oh, yes. Um, And it's like the size of a bed and breakfast, like, uh, like a, <laughs> it's an estate. So... So you can fit oh, all of now. us easily. <laughs> I don't want people thinking I live in some McMansion. Like, okay, no, it's a pretty it's, nice house. It's but just it's, below McMansion. It's not ridiculous. Yeah. It's not ludicrous. We're comfortable. And it, you know what? It actually seems pretty reasonable when all of us are in town. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, hosting people. Because, you know, one of the reasons we bought this place was we host family from England for three, four, five weeks at a time. And when you've got four or five people in a house, like, you don't want to be all on top of each other for that long. So And uh, a baby. And a baby now, of course, yeah. Baby so. needs its naps. Yeah. I've got to have room for the drums. Right, of course. <laughs> the drums, course. the printer, the workshop. Right. But you know what I wanted? Like, of course, you know, when somebody arrives, like, you know, they want the tour, right? But mm. I, I, wanted, I wanted the tech tour when I arrived. I feel like we're in a real-life episode of MTV Cribs today. Right. It's self-hosted Cribs. Um, and so we thought we should start with the very basics, like how Alex is getting power into his house, because you got a pretty impressive solar setup. Oh, yeah, there you go. Oh, interesting. Did they put, like, a netting along the bottoms for to keep out? Critigard, they call Yeah, it. okay. So there you go. That's a cool. eight kilowatt hours. Eight kilowatt array. So they're probably getting their main sun starting right about now. In the summer, we get perfect sun from about... 10 a.m. till about 3 p.m. Oh, nice. And then these guys get in the way slowly. Yeah. You can look on the monitoring app for Solar Edge. Yeah. And it, it, you, sh you can see the shadow moving across the roof. Like it, it does per panel breakdown. <laughs> yeah, so that's the panels. Yeah. And then they brought, they brought the cables in through the attic and down, down through the back. So that, that was the room we were sat in. That was the bonus room. So they brought the power sort of through this metal conduit out the back and through the attic of the, of the house. Good service right there. And so you can see the 
the metal conduit coming down the side of the drain pipe there and then into this solar edge inverter thingy that's here so that's it really there's um it's really not that complicated until i suppose if you were to put a battery wall in there it would get more complicated it, it would and that probably go around here this this thing is a wi-fi um bridge i used to have a zigbee bridge but it kept dropping out for some reason and the repeater was in the bonus room just up there but this one now is in into the basement into the server area um and it's this based on just 2.4 gig wi-fi yeah wow has its own ssid <laughs> just for some reason talks talks that way and then i plug in an ethernet cable into their little solar edge little white box receiver thing and then it connects out through through the internet that way and then they have a web portal mm-hmm. for all the deets and that's how they can monitor and yeah wow and they have a, an app of course Do they have an api that's the question yes that's how home assistant gets it <laughs> oh yeah that's that's great yeah. I mean, I was actually looking at um, a Kickstarter the other day where they do smart um, yeah. breaker panels. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And each breaker has the yeah. smarts built into it yeah. to, to read. Why are we not having this already? There's also a group that will analyze just your house power using machine learning and try to f- give a best guess of what appliances are running and then assign the individual usage to those. And yeah. Just by looking at the load, wow. the average load. Yeah. How do you tell between... Well, I was going to say a fridge and a server. Is or a, how do you tell between a hairdryer and a toaster? I don't know. Yeah. But maybe they have ways. Subtle signs in the data they think they found. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you for showing this to us. I'm just waiting for that episode where we get connected and you're like, okay, I'm ready to build the battery wall. I <laughs> do want to do that. And <laughs> yeah. as you've I seen... I think we could cuss. I know you're going to do something fancy and nice, but I'm telling you, we could DIY that thing. We could, yeah. I mean, as you've seen just before we were going to record, we get some lightning and some pretty big storms blow through here, and sometimes they knock down trees and the power goes out for four or five hours just on a random Tuesday. And that can be quite annoying. So there's two options for me for a power wall. Number one is to build a dedicated like UPS for my house, which sounds awesome, because I mean, it, just in this room, I think I have four UPSs just to make sure everything stays on during those little brownouts. I mean, what have I... I've probably counted... Yeah, at least... Have I counted six UPSs? Well, there's one for my desktop right yeah, there. Yeah. There's another one over there for like my 3D printer. And then there's another one over there for all my guitar amp equipment and stuff and like that. And there's stuff where the servers are, telco stuff, and some of the there's other stuff. There's another one in that about. closet, yep. the backup closet, yep. Yep. which we'll yep. get to in a minute. Uh, there's another one in the... <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Screw the whole house vacuum. Yeah, whole house UPS. That sounds great. I just got fed up of brownouts. Yeah, I guess the goal should be is like, as these UPSs get to the point where the batteries are aging out, that's when it's time to do the power wall. Right, that's what you do the power wall. Yeah, true, true <laughs> enough. Yeah. So we also got to see the server basement. I've been wanting to see this setup for a while. Mm. Oh. Nice. That's it, really. I'm loving it. So let's walk us through what we got here. We've got a nice wood-built rack. I mean, maybe not as nice as the one Brent built. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe it is. That's custom order. Maybe, maybe it isn't. Can't say. Well, tell me what you think we've got. Well, I'm seeing I'm seeing uh, seeing a couple of uh, APC UPSs. I'm seeing uh, your carrier's modem or whatever it is yep, yep. over there. Just in modem mode. Of course, we've got this big rack here that's a system with how many discs? I, I forget. I know you've told me, but I forget. Uh, and then what is this guy down here? This little itty bitty machine. That's uh, OpenSense. Oh, okay. That's the firewall. Yeah. I'm seeing a couple of switches there. Yeah. You've got a PoE switch so with eight ports for PoE running. Two cameras at least, and two ax- maybe three access points off that guy. Okay. So there's room for future expansion on that. I think I've only used five out of the eight ports. So I do plan on running another couple of cameras. Oh. Temperature sensor here? Yeah, so this is an ESP8266. 
8266 hooked up to a DHT22 temperature sensor. So it does temperature and humidity down here. I put it sort of behind the server. Now I think about it, maybe I should put it away from the server so it doesn't, you know, so the heat from the fans at the back doesn't ref affect the readings too much. But Seeing a new AOTAG Z-Stick, and I see it's plugged into the back of the machine there. Is that what I'm seeing, maybe? Uh, actually, that one's in a drawer upstairs because ah. I, I ditched the Z-Wave stuff after ah. our experiences with it. Yeah? And I went the Zigbee route and got the... Uh, Combi Zigbee USB, nice. Combi is, is that what I'm seeing plugged in there? Yeah, there's a Combi 2 in there as well as... Uh, Connections to the UPS. So this must be the Proxmox box then. Yeah, that's it. That's the one that does everything. That's and so then Home Assistant's around on this guy. Home Assistant's on there. That's got the i5-8500 in there. Yeah. It's um, the ASRock uh, Mini ITX, no, uh, Micro ATX board that I, I put in there last autumn. What's 10, this? 10 or 12 discs. Why does it say disc failed? I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he had me. <laughs> he had me. And then I've got this uh, cool, like, little um, KVM switch. I don't know if it's... Oh, yeah, great. ...actually connected up because this is... Oh, there you go. There you yeah. go. H-top up on the screen. So I've been running H-top for the last eight years, maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and it does the keyboard, too, which is That's pretty nice. That's super handy. So, there you go. Yeah. Love yes. And it just runs. It just... And it's not loud at all, really. Well, not really, but I do have the fans turned up because it's in the basement. Yeah, why not? I don't care about it. Right. You know, just keep, keep the airflow going through. And I figure, actually, in the basement environment, having a little bit of air movement is probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, so probably a little bit of a dehumidifier. It's probably doing me a solid. Nice. There it is. The famous setup. I do have some future projects for myself and Brent because Brent's staying with me for the next week or two after you guys leave. Uh, so we're going to rewire quite a lot of what's down there and you redo a, a, the, all the Ethernet into a patch panel, wall mount a lot of the uh, switches that are down there, probably run a couple more cameras, and pull some more Ethernet. That's always easier with two people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing we got a little peek at, uh, because Alex's place is so big, he can have a closet that's basically like an offsite backup. <laughs> I did think about this. So the uh, the server is at one end of the house, right. the, the right hand end, and then the room we're in to record is my bonus room above the garage, which is the left hand end of the house. As I think about it, maybe we should call these wings. Yeah. So, but this like, if there's going to be like a pipe bust or something like that, well, that's it. That's the insurance, isn't it? You yeah. know, if a tornado was to blow through or a hurricane was to blow through and knock the house down. I, I am out of luck with both of these boxes in the building. Maybe. I mean, you could still see one part of the structure could remain standing. Maybe. And you have them on opposite sides, so. Yeah, maybe. Or, or when the worst event happens, you know, whichever side you're closer to, you can try to grab the box on your way out of the house. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grab the baby in one hand, <laughs> yeah. the server in the other. Come on, wife, you can carry yourself. Someone grab the dog. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure he can carry himself, too. So this is a bit of a, like, storage for, like, boxes and gear. And then I see some backup power supplies. I see some switch gear. I see a patch panel. Yeah. Printer. Two switches. Um, what is this guy over here? Is this an HD tuner? HD home oh, run, yeah. Are you, are you pulling it over the air? Yeah. And it works in here like that? It, yeah, I mean, it's... It's just pointed towards the antenna. Painting a picture for the listener, I just have an over-the-air kind of flat wall antenna just resting, dangling on a shelf, pointed at the ceiling. And uh, it just works well enough. And t to be honest with you, the only time I use over-the-air tuner is when we've got some weather coming through and I want to watch the weather reports. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> so you call this the backup closet? Because down in the bottom right-hand corner over there, there's a little Lian Lee Q25B case with three hard drives in it. 
and uh, just above it is the... Um, oh, this is just a silent little machine running the here. the HP 290 Slim I keep talking about. Yep. It runs my Blue Iris. I wouldn't even know it was on. Nope. I can feel just a tiny bit of airflow, but mm-hmm. that's it. Huh. The backup server's off. I turn that on once a week, does its thing, and then it turns off. I have a sense, too, that we haven't even seen everything. Like, I think as we'll be here for the next few days, you'll be like, oh, right, I wanted to show you this, too. I do <laughs> hope so, yeah. yeah. That's always how it goes. Well, I think we're only just beginning to get a sense of all the automations at play, right? We've sort of scrapped the surface, the big ticket items that we've, you know, we've heard about on the show that we've been looking forward to. But, you know, you see Alex over there comfy in his chair, and you can tell he's controlling pretty much everything. Yeah, just before we were going to record, Chris was like, can you turn off the AC? It's a bit noisy. And he went to walk over to do, I was like, dude, sit down. Like an animal. <laughs> I know. I know. And I've, I, it was funny because I've also noticed like, you know, there's little temperature sensors throughout. Mm-hmm. There's some buttons here and there. What do you think of them? These are the little uh, Xiaomi Bluetooth low energy ones. Yeah, I like that they have the actual temperature display on there. And just on the wall behind you, uh, underneath a little red hat Bluetooth speaker, there's a little ESP32 3D printed with the yellow cable going into it. And that is what is talking on Bluetooth low energy to all these different temperature sensors ah. throughout this uh, half of the building. And then down the other end, I've got another one which talks to the ones down that end. And then they all feed through ESP Home into Home Assistant. Nice. Yeah, it's, uh, also, everything has sort of been augmented with... Uh, you could see where Alex has seen a problem. And like, oh, I can 3D print that solution. And oh, so yeah, definitely. Desk parts have been augmented. Uh, things mounted to the wall have been augmented with a 3D print. Uh, there's just little bits of 3D printing solutions here and there. You obviously are like, you see a problem, you're like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to print the fix to that. Well, I didn't spend money on a 3D printer to <laughs> I buy stuff. To look at it. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a replicator, dang it. So I want you to turn around. I, I've given you a hard time about Raspberry Pis in the past. There is a drawer marked to do, yeah? And in that drawer, I want you to uh, kind of <laughs> okay. pie shame you. These are all the projects that I, <laughs> I have in, in progress or to do. Oh, they're each in a case, too. Yeah. I don't know how you managed to come up with an idea more haunting than a to-do list, but a to-do drawer of physical objects. This is this is going to be about where I'm at, dude. Like this, you, You've got four pies within arm's reach, because there's one over here, too, a Cody box. And there's one attached to the 3D printer as well. So there's five pies within <laughs> arm's reach of me. Yes. Just within arm's reach of me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm using one of them. <laughs> I like this case. You've got some good cases here. Of course, yeah, you've so got I've the Flirk one, which I love, too. Got the Flirk case. We've got the uh, Geekworm aluminium case. Yeah. Uh, the Geekworm one is particularly good for the 3D printer because you take one half off and 3D print a specific bracket and then screw the two together, and you've got some heat dissipation for the Pi 4 and one half. And then the custom bracket attaches to the 3D printer, and it's good to go. <laughs> you got you can't give me a hard time anymore. You've been outed now. I know, I know. <laughs> the thing is, though, I buy stuff like um, home automation gear, and then I think, oh, I'll, I'll install that later. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then don't open the second drawer on the right, though, and look at all the Shelly gear I've got. Oh, no. <laughs> shamefully, I've bought. I just haven't got around to installing it. I know. It. I, have, I have a basket full of that stuff right now, but I'll get to it one of these days. You know what? And I'm not even kidding. In that basket are some wise cameras too uh-huh. that I've got to deploy. And that got sent into the show a couple of times this week. Wise took it over the back end about security. And people wrote in wanting to know what we thought about it, including Eric Johnston. He wrote in and said, uh, Hey guys, you know, you've talked about the Waze cameras quite a bit. They're actually wise, but you talk about the wise cameras quite a bit. Uh, and I thought you'd be interested to know this. Gizmodo wrote an article, and the headline is, you should probably stop using your Wise camera right now. Verge, the Verge wrote a headline that said, 
I'm done with wise. And I think the gist of what happened, I was traveling, but I think the gist of what happened is it turns out, turns out there's a pretty nasty vulnerability in the V1 camera. They no longer sell. They had to be on your LAN first, but if they got on your LAN and got some information off of your WISE camera, which supposedly they could do if they just had LAN access, then later on, they could access your camera and including information about your camera, even remotely. So, like, Wes comes, comes to my house, gets onto my WISE cameras, and then he's peeping on me from remote from then on out. I did make you guys a dedicated guest network. That explains just, it. Just to be safe. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, some of this is hyperbole, right? Some of this is just journalism, clickbait stuff. You know, uh, you should stop using your wise cameras immediately. Okay, fine. Yes. I understand why they write that headline. But since the original publication of the article, uh, wise themselves have released a response, you know, stating, like Chris said, um, we'd like to let our users know that these vulnerabilities required some form of local network access. And that does really rule out most attack vectors. I mean, unless you have a really crappy Wi-Fi password or you just leave an Ethernet cable hanging out your mailbox by the street. I mean, most people aren't going to get to your uh, to your local network. And so for me, yeah, fine. The V1s were vulnerable for a while. But what really actually bothers me is how Wise as a company handled That's it. this vulnerability. Yeah, that's the problem, right? is they just essentially sweeped it under the rug and discontinued the model. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe the logic was is we're not making any more of them. Yeah, I suppose so. We're not obligated to do anything better than just say, well, we're not telling you to keep using them. Yeah, and if you updated the version 2 or version 3, you didn't have this problem. So they figured, well, got, really got away from that problem. But the, in reality is, people have these deployed, right? Doctors, offices, maybe even, who knows? It is a little worse than that. So the V1, 2, and 3 were all vulnerable. Yeah. But they silently released an update a few months ago for the V2 and 3 only. So they've left the V1s hung out to dry. Yeah, yeah. Just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Yeah, and then you combine that with bad communication. This could be really bad for Wise, because Wise has aspirations to become the IoT of everything vendor. From internet scales, to door locks, to everything. In fact, if you open up the Wise app now, they have a shop section in there. They're selling lights. They're selling every single kind of iot wi-fi connected device you can think of they're selling it now and you have to you have to have a brand that's trusted in order to do that and if you don't have a trusted brand you're dead in the water i agree completely i'm, I'm a bit surprised by Bitdefender, who are the security research company who uncovered this flaw. they sat on it for nearly three years before telling us about it so uh not only is there the original vulnerability that you know we're talking about here there were other previously undisclosed vulnerabilities that have been uh, bypassing the authentication as well as allowing remote code execution uh, reported in both 2019 and 2020. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's when they were patched, so, sorry. But uh, I mean, I just feel like Wise has to step their game up. This isn't good enough. You know, when they discontinued the V1, they issued a vague like... Uh hey, this has some enhanced security risks, so you probably don't want to use it anymore. So knowing what we know about this, that you have to be on the LAN initially to exploit it, and then when they discontinued the product, they said, hey, by the way, you should probably stop using it. I think their exact wording, I I found it at one point. The company issued a warning during the V1 retirement saying, quote, it has an increased risk of attack. Increased risk. Because you do have to be on the LAN, because it has to be this particular one that they're not patching, and because it is a retired product, 
where is the line here? I agree with the V2 and V3. They sh- there should have been patch notes. The only reason that they're end of lifing the product is because it says here in their blog post they can't support necessary fixes in that product. Yeah. And so for me, if it was only being end of life as a consequence of that, gesture of goodwill, give us 25% off a V2 or a mm. V3 camera or something, mm. you know, something. Yeah, because, you know, they rolled the dice. To make a $25 camera, mm-hmm. they had to put really cheap parts in there. And that's why some of their AI stuff until the V3... Honestly, guys, the Wise cams are not good until the V3. The V3 is a really good camera is, for, what, yeah. for the price, for 35 bucks or whatever, but V1 and 2, they were we, rough. We've been using the V3 as our baby monitor. Yeah. it's The night vision on that thing is, is incredible. It is. I, I'm, I'm gone right now, and half of, half of the way I'm monitoring the RV is with Wise V3s. Now, for Every me, five minutes, he pulls out his phone, and he's like, yeah. oh, look, there's Levi again. Yeah. <laughs> I got to check on the dog. It's your own form of doom scrolling, I think. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But for me, and I think maybe for a lot of the people in our audience, when I deploy something like this, a $25 or a $35 camera, I go in assuming it's going to be monetized in some other way that I don't agree with. And right. so I, I blocked DNS requests from the camera. So the cameras can't properly talk to the internet. I have to be on my LAN in order to use the cameras. And that's just always the way I've... So they don't talk to... And that means they don't get firmware updates either. I have actually restored the DNS access and done the firmware thing once, but then that's also caused problems. So it's not ideal. And that's why I've kind of backed off. I don't, if people have noticed on the show, I don't really talk about them as much anymore because it is a bit of a compromised product. But for the price and for the functionality and for the ability to integrate it with Home Assistant using things like WiseBridge, it's a compromise I'm willing to make still. And I'm not going to stop using my WiseCams because of this, but I'd already built kind of for this scenario. Does it change any of your thoughts on adopting additional wise cams? You know, is this still a reasonable trade-off? Because that seemed kind of how they got on the scene, right? Like, look, it's not perfect, but it's it's cheap, it's workable, and it, it gets you started instead of maybe a you know hundreds of dollar fancy IP camera. Yeah, I'm always on the fence. It's like the wise. The great thing about the wise cams, USB powered, Wi-Fi. They can go outdoors. You can get them to work with Home Assistant with pretty much minimal effort. And you don't have to run wires or anything like that, right? It's just those things are so great, but they're also just not quite the right tool for the job. They're not quite the right ones to run 24-7, do 4K video. You really want it wired. You want PoE and that kind of stuff, in my opinion. So that's always the, that's always the balance I'm trying to make. Particularly as they're moving into the wider smart home ecosystem. Like, like you were saying, they have ambitions to, I think they make a doorbell now. They make, uh, probably be making a 3D printer before we know it. <laughs> So uh, I think the the long term outlook for me and Wise is uh, they're just a cheap, convenient solution to non essential problems. Um, you know, if, if the the webcam we're using for as a baby monitor broke, I'd probably just buy another one because they're so cheap compared to a dedicated baby monitor. Um, and we have the flexibility of pulling up the app anywhere we on any device. And you know, yep. They're, they're very flexible, yep, they're, they're very yep, cheap, exactly. but you do pay a price for that. And sometimes they have a great sale. They have great sales sometimes, too. I think it does say a lot, you know, just talking about all the things you have automated in your home, but that flexibility really is, you know, you know, you could set all that up if you wanted to, but it just, just the point is that sometimes it's really nice not to have to. Now, I'm really not sure how I feel about Plex's news this week. They've added a universal watch list, which allows for search and discovery across all 
the streaming services. We're talking Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max, etc., etc., etc. And they've done all this client side, and we we all took a look earlier before the show. And uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Hmm. 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 You know, I remember when we talked to the CEO. I. I I remember then thinking this is the way they're going because this is probably the most legitimate play they can make for this space. And they are also in a very unique position where they have a huge established user base that has a large local library that has the shared function where you can have friends. So like Alex and I, we share our Plex libraries with each other. And so that last piece was kind of the online streaming. So now you can look for a movie and you can see it across all of your friend's servers, your own server, or the online streaming services that it's on. Now, to facilitate this, Plex raised $50 million in funding last year. So we knew this was going somewhere, and then $20 million just landed even more recently. Previously, and probably likely still, their primary revenue came from PlexPass. Now they're transitioning to this new model where, in this mix, when you search for a movie, sometimes it's free. And that's going to be ad-supported. And they're going to run a pre-roll. And they believe that in 2022, ad-supported revenue is going to easily surpass the Plex Pass. Um, And, okay, so these, I think this is the general, like, okay, I can see where they're going. I acknowledge it. Yet in the pit of my stomach, I'm very concerned. They do make some concessions on the, uh, the blog post to say, categorically, we do not and do not have any plans to upload your data to our servers you know we don't really care what's in your libraries etc etc maybe that's a good thing since it does seem to be all happening client side like your plex server didn't get updated to support this no i didn't change my my uh, pms version i didn't change even the android tv app didn't get update we went to check the history before just to see if uh, if it was but no it's it's all uh, the client itself the app obviously had some frameworks built into it to check plex's servers to change what it's displaying to me at any given moment and then just at the bottom left hand corner it now says discover brackets beta yeah um these kinds of things you know being able to search across all of the services they live and die on these business relationships and roku has tried this apple has tried this and plex you know this this was brought up to the team over at plex and uh They said, quote, we are a little bit of a Switzerland in this regard. They believe that they can be the Switzerland of streaming, and they're going to create deals directly with Samsung and LG to build in Plex that scans across all of these services. On the back end, they're building deals out with all these different streaming providers and trying to leverage their public APIs where they can. But this has never worked? Yeah, what's the business model? Like, I mean, we we tried it, like I said before the show, and the experience was... It's all miss, right? We we often clicked into an app that I didn't have installed or the service linked me to, I think it was to YouTube in particular for a particular movie. I clicked on the movie and nothing happened. All yeah. I really did was just pass a search parameter to the YouTube app, but it was like a limited version of the YouTube app. Like even, even when it did work, it seemed like on net, it was kind of a worse experience than watching from your Sometimes. local. Sometimes. I mean, yeah. I, I can imagine after you got every single streaming service app installed and you got every single streaming service app logged in, then you go back to Plex. I could see that being a little smoother, but what would be even incredible, and I understand they can't do this, is if you could just stream it all in Plex, because that's yeah. what you use Plex for, right? It's basically just a, a shell forwarding you to where the content is. Yeah. And they're just trying to deep link to the specific content in that app. I don't see Disney or Netflix or Amazon Prime or HBO letting Plex do that. You know, bypass DRM 
it would probably make the particular streaming service app less sticky. So, you know, that's a, just it. A lot of the friction of just changing apps for a lot of people is enough to keep people in the Netflix right. app or in the that's Disney app. Yeah, you you kind of lose your moat effect, right? Disney wants you to have to go into the Disney app. They want you to experience the Disney Plus experience. Right. So even if, if Plex isn't competing in terms of being the actual media dealer, on that, on being the dashboard and the interface, right. they are. Right. If you, you know, if you launch the Disney Plus app, they can feature their new movies. They can put banners up for the, for the content they're trying to drive traffic to. And they don't have that control over the Plex UI. Hey, didn't you know we sell toys for these too? <laughs> yeah. So this is somewhat like some kind of a bastard child of tracked.tv and justwatch.com because you can set up lists to add certain things to watch lists and uh, when a particular movie's coming out in the future I can say oh remind me when this movie comes out and uh, where I'll be able to watch it um what's really interesting though is is that at the moment it feels promising yet simultaneously not finished yeah i like being able to search for a movie and in the results I see what server it's available on immediately. That's um, really nice. It, yeah. it was more of a manual process to find out if you had a movie or not. With the quality there. So if I search for a movie, it says HD 1080p on my server and yours, it might say 4K, for example. I'd be like, oh, I'll go and watch it on Chris's. Right. And, and funny enough, that worked really well. That fires right up. It's all inside the Plex app. That's the experience you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just when you go off to the other streaming apps that it's, it's nice to know what services a piece of content is on and if you can buy or rent it. Because I have been in the situation where the family wanted to watch a movie. We didn't own that movie. We didn't have that one online. And so I ended up doing that thing where I, went, I found some website that lets you search across multiple streaming services. And then I fired that app up. And then, you know, so it, it fixes that process. Right. There's always three different versions of those sites. And you're never quite sure. Are they actually up to date? Are they up to date? <laughs> yeah, it's true. So they fix that. And, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before on the show. It's like, what else are they going to do, guys? They can't be like... Hey, if you've got a really big pirated collection, like we're the best app to play your pirated collection. Like they can't go that route, right? So they've got to find some legitimate way to do this that isn't going to get them crushed by the copyright lobbyists. It's been obvious for a while, just as a user of Plex, that the core app, certainly as I see it, certainly what it started out as, as a home media streaming solution that is probably synonymous with pirated content, if we're being honest. Uh that is not their core business now. And the app itself and the performance and the bugs and, you know, just just the feature set that we're getting is proof of that. And, th- and this, this finally is, in my opinion, Plex tipping their hand and saying, this is the future of Plex. And so for me, I think uh, Jellyfin is becoming more important than ever right now. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, that's why I've been kind of watching the new Jellyfin releases and a new beta 10.8.0 just uh, shipped a few days ago. There's some nice stuff in here. A lot of transcode fixes, some DLNA fixes are in here. It feels like they're entering that real sweet spot um, where they're focused on this kind of stuff. You know, that's a lot of how these things work in tech. They, you know, when they get big enough, they have to become some legitimate business. <laughs> like Harvey, Harvey Dent, right? If you live long enough, you see yourself become the villain. Yeah, possibly. Uh, but I mean, with Jellyfin, right, we have a viable alternative. The only real major criticism I have is that it's in a language that I don't personally know how to contribute to. It's based off of the MB history. So there's a lot of, you know, Windows.net style, I think it's, or it's maybe uh, C Sharp. I can't remember. Yes. Yeah, yeah C Sharp, Yep. 
I feel the same way. It's sort of it's a foreign thing. I'd love to be able to help, but yeah, it's not if my it was wheelhouse. Python, I would be in there. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dangus wrote in uh, with some Plex free music self hosting tips. Says, "Hey guys, love the show. I wanted to mention a few apps for those outside the Plex ecosystem, or maybe planning to migrate. I've been an avid Jellyfin user for a few years now, and I've been getting into my music and hosting as well, namely Sonic XD for the desktop and Symphonium, I think." Symphonium for Android. Both of these are fantastic audio players that connect to both Jellyfin and Subsonic. Uh, and Plexam, while it looks fantastic, it's a bit of an investment if you're not already in the Plex ecosystem. So you wanted to pass these along. So it looks like Symphonium, Symphonium, S-Y-M-F-O-N-I-U-M, and Sonix D, S-O-N-I-X-D for the desktop. I can give you some real-time feedback on my Plexamp experiment if oh, you'd yeah, like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, do both it. Both the wife and I... Uh, quit spotify a couple of months ago and up until about a week ago it's been going really really well until we actually until i actually had a conversation with my wife and said how are you finding plexamp and she goes well it's missing this and now you mention it it's missing that and i don't can you can we download this and can we i'm like i've just i looked at my server and i've got like five or six terabytes of music now and i'm still missing a bunch of stuff and lidar you know we talked about the uh the deezer script a while ago just can't cope with that kind of volume. It's just spinning its wheels and, and mm. just gets lost in it. So uh, I, I am really enjoying Plexamp on, on my side. I've got pretty much all the music I regularly listen to, um, but we have, we have resubscribed to Spotify. I was tempted recently. I was tempted because it's really nice to have Spotify on the studio equipment. And on Linux, it's nice to have Spotify sometimes. But I haven't yet folded. I have, I have, I have remained canceled Spotify free. I'm I'm using YouTube Music over here. I'm a weirdo. Ooh. How is uh, that? How's that going? It's okay. I used to use uh, the Google Play Music back when that still existed, partially because I could upload a bunch of my own right, yeah. FLAC files yeah, to it. And yeah. so I still have those. And yeah, I don't know. I like having a subscription. It's very convenient for discovery for just random stuff I don't care about. But because I can no longer upload to it, I do find I'm more interested in some of these, you know, Plexamp. I'm going right. to check out Doesn't Apple Music here. let you do that? Let you upload your own? Yeah, we should get Wes on an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I've been trying that for three years. <laughs> <laughs> when you got me, yeah. I want one. Yeah, well, it's because I got you to have a kid first. See, I, I took the long play on that one. First, I convinced <laughs> you guys to have a kid. So then you would be felt, felt motivated to get good camera optics. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what, there was an example of streaming service entropy this week. Um, Snoop Dogg has decided to take hit one of his, mo- or a couple of his most famous albums, one of which is called Doggy Style. Uh, and I listened to that album a surprising amount, actually. And I went on Spotify the other day, and it's it's gone. Do you know why? He's trying to sell it as an NFT. Oh. So I fired up Plexamp, boom, straight away. You know, so I, I have uh, <laughs> I have doggy style in Plexamp. And all that money you saved on your Spotify subscription, you know, now you can buy the now NFT. Now I can buy the NFT. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. I'm sitting here. It's a little bittersweet. I don't really want to talk about this next story. But for some people out there, maybe they care. New version of Home Assistant came out. But doesn't matter. I'm not upgrading because I can't. Oh, but come on. It's packed with amazing features. I knew they would do this to me. I knew the version, because this is where they dropped my Z-Wave. And I knew they would do this. Tons of new stuff that I want. But it is really good. So yeah, it is. It is there's a, a few things that stand out to me. The, the one, uh, there's, a, there's a couple. Let's start off with the uh, group stuff so now you can create groups in the user interface directly previously you would have to drop to the yaml uh, configuration to do that it's a nice little change um along with uh, a new hide entities function yes w- finally 
which lets you hide the constituent lights, say, of a particular group. That's really nice. That is. I want that already. Now, another one that got me pretty excited was Switch as X. So in my Home Assistant YAML right now, I have a bunch of, uh, I, I don't know what you call them, but they basically convert a switch into a light or a cover. Or, right. Or as from, in my case, a smart plug into a heater or something exactly, like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And Switch as X now lets me set directly in the configuration of that uh, smart plug. I can now show that as a light. Mm-hmm. Zones, the entire zone can now have a state. That's really nice to see. So, uh, like, my my kitchen is a zone, my living room is a zone, my bedroom is a zone. Um, and they've done optimizing on both the front-end and the back-end side of Home Assistant as well. Mm-hmm. So, and I love that. Of course, of course, I'm not going to get that version. And now it's no longer called uh, Lovelace either. It's just called the dashboard now, too. That is a shame, because obviously it was a, a tip of the hat to Ada Lovelace, yeah. one of the fathers of... Well, can can you call her a father of computing? A mother, a mother of computing. A mother of computing. I One suppose. of the perennials. We have a word for that, don't we? <laughs> there, there was another feature in there though that caught my fancy, and this is particularly useful when writing automations. There's a, a little test button up in the top of yes. the automations thing, which lets you test the conditions to make sure they're right. And yeah, yeah. it's a nice little one. <sighs> Damn it. This really sucks. I want this version so bad. So if this isn't enough, what is enough to make you upgrade? Time. It's, just, yeah. I mean, it's a matter of having to redo my entire Z-Wave. And, you know, all of my, I mean, my, my heater stuff, all my heating stuff, all my, all my temperature sensors, my outdoor sensors, my motion sensors, they're all my UV sensors, my humidity sensors, they're all Z-Wave. You're just putting off the inevitable, though. I know. You're going to have to do it. Have you considered uh, learning Python and starting to maintain the old version yourself? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm doing just about as much work because I'm first I got to learn I got to learn Nix OS upside and down, and then I got to figure out how to deploy everything I was deploying in a container in Nix OS, and I got to learn how to move everything over to MQTT and do Z Wave to MQTT, and then I'm going to have to figure out Node Red if I go that route. So I, I, I might as well just learn Python and probably save myself some time. They've really done this at the worst time, too, because here we are traveling and all this stuff, and I'm just learning an entire new way I want to build my system. So, if, like, now I don't want to do it the old way and then be like, this is old and busted. It's just the worst. I should have, I can't believe they didn't call me first and ask me. <laughs> just to reiterate, the reason Chris is all butthurt is because they're deprecating Py- a Python 2-based integration. Yeah. Which has been coming for how many years? Two years, maybe? Okay. I don't know. All I don't right. know. <laughs> I just don't sympathize with you on this one. I don't. Yeah. I know it's a pain in the butt. Okay. But. Can I, can I plead my case set differently? Can I, okay. I'll take a new approach. We can try. If they'd only gotten that damn, damn migration wizard to work properly, I could have migrated to the supported stuff, but the migration wizard didn't work. So now I'm still a victim, right? <laughs> a victim. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'll, I'll hang tight for a bit. And then you're, probably by summertime, I'll get, I'll get caught up. I'll still keep the home assistant, uh, install at the studio. I'll keep that up to date. You're like a Will Smith level victim. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I'm still finding it weird that I'm in the same room as you two gentlemen. This is, uh, this is nice. I could get used to this. We should, we need to get like, uh, six more sponsors on every episode and we just do every episode like this. Yeah. We just pay for the flights. Turn it into an LTT video. Probably need a time machine too, to make that five hour flight each way work. <laughs> well, think about the automations we could do in the JB private jet. Right. Oh, that's where we go. We need a jet. We need one. We keep flying west. If we always fly west, then it'll be fine. We can make that work, right? Oh, yeah. I think because it's a globe, that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. Or is it east? I don't know. I mean, you just go one direction long enough. It doesn't matter. True. 
So we have some feedback from Josh today. Uh, Hi, Chris and Alex. Thank you for the podcast. I've recently been starting out in the world of self-hosting and I've listened to every episode. I am fortunate enough to be able to keep something small at my dad's house. Now, given the chat on a previous episode, I've been looking towards an SBC single board computer based NAS. Hopefully this will consume very little power and should be able to cope with semi-regular incremental backups. I'm thinking about something uh, maybe in the weekly backup range. There seems to be mixed advice about this online, including a lot of feedback suggesting that using an SBC is flawed as these discs will be hanging off the USB bus. Uh, Do you feel this is something to be concerned about or is this an acceptable compromise to reach the low power and small form factor solution I'm looking for? I'm hearing low power a couple of times in here. So it sounds like that is a that is a primary concern for Josh here. And so you probably are going down the right path, Josh. But I wonder... Have you considered the magnificent world of the Compute Module 4? Because there are carrier boards where you can get PCI slots, you can get a SATA, you can have an EMMC, which is much superior to an SD card for a boot drive. And so, uh, you know, if if I were going to build a NAS today based around some sort of SBC, it would take a really, really, really strong argument for me to consider anything else but the CM4, simply because nothing else has the network effect, the community effect, the software support. And when you're building something that you want to run solid and run for a while, that matters. You know, there might be faster SBCs out there, ones that already have PCI slots, for example. But the CM4, the Compute Module 4, combined with a carrier board that can accommodate you, in my experience, is such a solid setup. It's really hard to argue against that. What do you think, Alex? It's just a backup. Right. Yeah, true. If you have something hanging off the USB bus and it fails, it shouldn't matter. It is your backup. As long as you have monitoring in place to let you know that something's gone south, you know, the, the backup is the perfect place to experiment and do something that's slightly more risky. Uh, so long as maybe, I don't know, like may, maybe have two, <laughs> uh, you know, three, two, one. Yeah, and the prices you probably could too. Right? I mean, the most expensive thing here is going to be the storage. That's going to be the most expensive thing. So let us know what you do, Josh, because, you know, sometimes we get these questions, but we don't always get the follow-ups, so we'd love to know. Kevin writes in, I have five or so VPS servers on Linode. I have one domain name at my DNS provider with subdomains pointing to each server. It's great for SSH access. I want to run a web server from each one of them. I've obtained a wildcard TLS certificate from Let's Encrypt on the first server using Lego. I've confirmed the wildcard cert works on the first server where Lego is installed. It serves a new page with HTTPS on the subdomain with that cert. I then set a cron job to run Lego and renew that cert monthly. What is the safest way, though, to propagate that wildcard cert from one server to all four other servers automatically each month? I've got WireGuard, I've got SSH, uh, just not keys, I've got Ansible Vault I could potentially use. Um, I've thought about doing these with cron jobs that copy these over SSH, but how do I automate communicating between the servers? How do I protect the SSH keys, the SSH certificate, and other connection credentials and move all of this around? This feels like one of those where there's like a thousand ways you could solve this problem. You could do it the proper way, the established way, and move the certificates around between the servers. But we were talking about this as a group before we recorded and uh wes you came up with an interesting idea 
Yeah, it's kind of sounding like maybe the, uh, you know, handling of the secrets, uh, distributing that to multiple machines, that workflow hasn't really been worked out yet in this case. That, that's a fine thing to experiment with. But if that's not an essential, you know, if that's just going to be an implementation detail to the actual point of getting this done, you don't need to be the one handling that part of it. What about just something like S3? You know, I mean, you can you can secure that. You can also set uh, time expiring links. if That was the kind of thing you were worried about. And uh, you don't have to host it. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you can do, like you say, authentication on an S3 request. Uh, it's easily accessible over the internet, safely, securely. People do it all the time. I'm sure you've all seen the uh, web URL of an S3 item in your uh, URL bar at some point. Uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg problem with SSH that you come across all the time, right? I, I want to automate this thing, but I need my SSH key over there already before I do the thing. And <laughs> yep. Yep. That's S3 true. solves that particular problem or any kind of object storage, really. Uh, but the reason I think that we talked about S3 in particular is that it's authenticated. And if you're putting a secret up there, like a certificate, it's uh, you mm. need to have some kind of authentication in front of it. And you could just use object storage at Linode already, because that's S3 compatible. Good to go. So nobody's going to suggest sync thing. Okay, so don't use sync thing then. We did mention it. But yeah, then, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like it's uh, uh, how secure is it? Like with third party bounce servers and stuff like that. I mean, it's probably fine. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like the right tool, does it? I mean, it seems like you could do it, but it doesn't seem like the right way to do it. Go old school and use BitTorrent. Yeah, there you go. Well, BitTorrent sync. You right. could do that. I think you mean Resilio. Resilio sync. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, with the S3 solution, it would work in much a similar way as SyncThing, right? I, I guess with SyncThing, you could, and this is just solutionizing off the top of my head, which I hate doing, but anyway, <laughs> uh, you could uh, encrypt the secret on whatever box is running Lego and then sync the encrypted thing with SyncThing and then have the logic to decrypt it at the remote site that way and that would be kind of secure as it's going over the wire but i bet you that's how i would do it if i if i were to solve this problem that's probably what i would do but here's the downside on each of those other four remote systems you still need the decryption password yeah probably stored in plain text probably on disk so yeah are you in any better solution than just doing it with a sync thing naked i don't know probably not but if anybody has an idea let us know selfhosted.show slash contact or send us a boost like optimus gray did Optimus boosted in. He said, I hope to see you next week if gas prices aren't too high, that is. But don't work Brent too much. I want to see Brent. <laughs> he sent us 500 sats to say that. If you want to give us a boost, it's like the bat line into the show. You go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Load that wallet up and send us a boost and uh, we'll get it here on the show. I want to say a big thank you to our SRE, Site Reliability Engineer subscribers. You make this show possible over at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Mm -hmm. And they could join the party, jupiter.party, if they want to support the entire network and get access to all the special features of the shows. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I wonder if we'll have some extras. We should probably plug the extras just in case and we get any extra content that we record here with the group of us, extras.show. Wes, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me. We, I, we really didn't give him a chance to stretch his wings, you know. We could get into some topic down the road that Wes could probably really dig into. You should think about that. So, Wes, you're just going to have to come back so that way we can do it again. Oh, I think we can come up with something. I think we can, indeed. Go find uh, our contact page. Send us in your thoughts. Let us know what you think. Maybe you got a solution for one of the things we talked about today. Selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to get in touch. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. 
I thought we weren't doing the Twitter thing anymore. I decided to do it this week. Okay, okay. It's because Elon's on board now, is it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, I'm on Twitter also, at Ironic Badger. I'm also, and this is something that a listener wrote in and let me know about, we need to plug the Discord more heavily. So, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, apparently we don't say enough about it. So we got a Discord. Here we go. We have a Discord, selfhosted.show slash Discord. I'm over there, at AlexKTZ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you on the Twitter? Is there anything you want to plug, Wes? Uh, I am at Wes Payne. And hey, maybe check out that podcast you and I do, Linux Action News. Hey, hey, hey. Also, there's a self-hosted matrix. Our matrix server is colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. If you want to get in some trouble over there, we'd love to have you and uh, get in there. There is, I think, a growing two self-hosted room community over there. There's isn't two it, of them. Isn't it ironic that the self-hosted podcast has a Discord server and LUP and JB as a whole have the Matrix server, and I'm just not... Well, we kind of have... It came first. The Discord server, I think, came first. All these problems that you talked about in last week's lot about hosting a chat server are exactly why I, I didn't want to do it. We should mention, if you want to hear some horror stories about self-hosting yeah. Matrix, we just did that in Linux Unplugged, the most recent episode, which uh, I should probably have the number for since we're talking about it, but... You know, let's just say when... You know, if you're... I just want to... I'll just say this part. If you're doing it for five or ten people, maybe even a hundred people, it's fine. Don't worry about it. If you want to do for more than 100 people, or maybe 2,000 people, there's some things that go, they go a little wrong, they go a little sideways with the default config, and we cover that at linuxunplugged.com slash 452. And if you have any other questions about, oh, which episode did uh, Chris talk about this particular thing in Coda Radio, we have a show notes website over at notes.jupiterbroadcasting.com. Uh, all the episodes are in there, and it's actually a fully self-hosted website. Now, as always, thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 68. I do recall uh, sometime in the pandemic, you were the instigator of my purchase of the Kamado Joe, the big red egg that I got outside. Yeah, it's like, well, if you're going to do it, do it right. I'm excited to fill you with my meat this weekend. (laughs) I have been looking forward to your meat. I've been thinking about your meat. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things... I never thought I would have been this guy, but I get excited about another man's meat. Um, <laughs> Wes made this unbelievably good pork shoulder. I've been talking about it for like a week now. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's just incredible. Okay, so, I need details. I'm all about pork shoulders. You cooked it in a bath. Oh, yes, I did. Sous vide. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, go on. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the smoking setup you do just yet, so, you know, we had to use a little liquid smoke. Yet, I heard that important <laughs> word. <laughs> well, that's one thing I'm hoping to get out of this weekend is, uh, you know, see, yeah. see what this thing can do. Yeah, there you go. So we, bat, we, we cooked it in the bath, which had a sauce in the bag, right? And, yep. and then he took it out of the bag, and we finished it in the oven. We were going to do the grill. Decided to finish it in the oven, covered it in an armadillo sauce and spices. What's an armadillo sauce? Basically barbecue sauce. Oh. Yeah, it's a, a, a delightful name for some local Washington uh, barbecue sauce company. It's, I think it's secret aardvark sauce. Ah, uh, and then made like a bark on the outside of this mm-hmm. thing, right? So you got the you got the good bark going and then brought in the Hawaiian sweet rolls plus some homemade co or no quickly made coleslaw, but it was still good. It was homemade. Mm-hmm. It was homemade. Quickly throwing together coleslaw, but on top of that, oh, please. Nice. Simple, but the best part I think was that all that baking and getting that bark could happen while we were podcasting. Yeah, so by the time yeah. we were done, it was yeah. ready to go. The whole studio smelled so good. <laughs> you knew as we were sitting there recording lap that we had this delicious meal out there waiting for us. Well, we're going to go shopping probably at some point this evening and we're going to go and buy some St. Louis style ribs or right. some baby backs. Maybe I haven't decided yet. Okay. <laughs> Try new ribs. Yeah. And most, most of the reason is that they only take about three or four hours. Hmm. If you want to start doing a brisket, you're looking at 16 hours and you end up eating at 1am. 
that's a big commitment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's a lot of us to feed, but there aren't that many of us. Uh, yeah, well, Brand doesn't eat meat. Uh, yeah, that 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 too. Um, yeah. But I start getting really into the science of it, and uh, there's this one particular uh, YouTube channel, Smoking Dad Barbecue, that I've been getting into lately. Wes and I both go to Google it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then this guy, he uh, he talks all about the specifics of using one of these ceramic eggs, uh, because the thing is, with a traditional stick burner, which is the kind of normal, sort of like a an, an oil drum kind of shape grill with a, a a wood fire on the side, is you get a lot of convection through there so you get a lot of yeah. a lot of air moving that, yeah. through that thing but with the green egg or a red uh, kamado joe egg thing that i have they're so efficient at the fuel usage they don't draw much air through mm. and so the way in which they cook the food is very different they, they use the radiation of the ceramic heat to cook the food rather than the airflow and the hot air passing over the over the food and so you've got to adjust your your cooking um and I, I did find actually that a lot of my briskets came out a bit tough on the bottom for some reason, or a lot of they just, just had little problems. I thought, hmm, that could be better. Uh, and, uh, you know, some exciting news. I can just see Brent coming oh. down the road. So he'll be here any minute. Brentley's arriving as we record. Um, but the exciting thing about uh, this particular channel is he, his cooks are tailored to the Kamado Joe style grill. Oh, yeah, that's great. Uh, so you can do ribs in about three hours. So he's tweaked his recipes mm-hmm. for that type of cooking. Yeah, so you cook a little bit higher, a little bit faster, a little bit hotter oh. uh, than the traditional low and slow method. But he does things like he does a double indirect heat thing to prevent the heat from the fire heating too much from the bottom. and he increases the airflow a certain way, and uh, it's. I think it's the way to go. Ah, nice. Good find. You know, that's the funny thing about YouTube when it comes to cooking. Like, uh, I follow a YouTuber who just does cooking on the griddle that I have, the, the Blackstone griddle. I do yep. everything. It's these two twins, and they, they have this whole shtick that they do, uh, and they just... Everything, everything, and so you know you want to figure out how do I okay I want to make breakfast on this thing. What do they do? You go watch one of their videos. Someone else has something you can at least take and tweak and try. Yep, that's a great thing about YouTube for that kind of stuff. Yeah, ribs sound really good. I'm looking at this guy's page right now, and he's just done a video recently, seven days ago. On he ribs. is committed to his craft. He's built an outdoor kitchen and he lives in Canada. Oh, so you know he can actually probably use that thing at a normal temperature for about two weeks a year. Yeah. And the rest of the year, he's just cold. See, cold, but full. Looks like he's been going since January of 2019 with 65,000 subscribers. He's building out his niche. Reviews, recipes, tips, and tricks weekly. <laughs> <laughs> the internet's so great. I'll ring that bell. 